Let's uh, transition then into our study for this morning. Um, and let's just read this passage and then start talking about it. This is a fascinating little piece of, of scripture. This is uh, Psalm 119, verses 105 through 112. Your word, God's word, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to observe your righteous ordinances. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your decrees are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Beautiful piece of scripture. Way more complicated and detailed than it might first appear. James Luther Mays is one of the commentators that I regularly consult when I'm looking at the Psalms, and he said he titles this little piece of scripture. Uh, in fact, he titles, I think, the whole 119th Psalm, Your Word in My Heart. God's Word in My Heart. Isn't that a beautiful way? Uh, I think I've listed that in your notes. Uh, highlight that, underline that. Your Word, God's Word in My Heart. The whole of Psalm 119 is a celebration, a magnification, an explanation, a description of the place of God's word in our lives. And frankly, the central place, the center place of God's word in our lives. God shares his word and in his word he teaches us and we learn. We do not want to be uninformed unintelligent, poorly educated, badly skilled when it comes to the business of living life, do we? We want to be really good at living life. God is the teacher who teaches us how to live life. He teaches us, this is the whole of Psalm 119, he teaches us through his Torah. You've heard that word before, the Torah, T-O-R-A-H. That's different from Torah, Torah, Torah in the Japanese language, which means tiger, 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 right? Okay, some of us who grew up with that movie uh, get confused. The Torah of God is the law of God. Now, it's not just law in the sense of rules and regulations. It is every means by which God has revealed true reality to us, true facts to us, the nature of the way everything is, including the way we are and way, the way we are meant to be, if you will. Torah is partly involved in the history of God's people. We learn through history. We learn through stories. Torah is involved in the poetry and the worship life of God's people. Torah is also involved, of course, in the rules and regulations, things like the Ten Commandments and everything that flows out of that, okay? The Torah is God's primary means, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, by which he reveals himself to us and shows us the way that we are meant to live life. Another commentator I looked at, uh, Michael Wilcox, said that this is all about God's way for people to be happy. So, how many of you want to be happy? Okay, 
course, we all want to be happy. And not just happy in sort of a superficial sense, but happy in terms of the deep sense of, of deeply joyful, deeply satisfied, deeply successful and competent in living our lives. That's what this is all about. God is the teacher, we are the students. This psalm harkens back to one of the key passages of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6, where God says to the people as they are coming into the promised land, he commands the people to study his commandments and ordinances and decrees, to know his Torah, and by knowing it and then living it, they will be blessed and they will have the joy that God means for them to have in living in the promised land. So that's what the whole of Psalm 119 is about. I want to share that with you now because we'll start to take this little portion of Scripture apart. And we'll begin by looking at the structure of the psalm itself. As you know, the psalms are both written Scripture and liturgy, music, poetry. The psalms were meant to be used in the worship life of the church. In fact, probably a lot of them were actually sung and recited and memorized and, and repeated in the worship of the temple and the worship of local uh, congregations long before they were ever written down. Let's get in touch with it this way. How many of you have a couple of, of songs, Christian songs, let's say, that have been very important to you over the years? What are they? Let's shout out some of them. How great thou art. Jesus loves me. Majesty and glory. Precious Lord. Here I am, Lord. Fairest Lord Jesus. The church is one foundation. Amazing grace. Yeah. It's easy, isn't it? Isn't it? Just like that. I bet we could come up with 50 more titles in just a couple more minutes of the songs that say so much to us, right? Now, the words say a lot, even the tune, of course, the, 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 the music itself begins to speak so deeply to us. Well, that's what we're talking about in the book of the Psalms themselves. They would be sung, they would be re, uh, recited, they would be used by the priests, they would be used by the people, because music and poetry speak so deeply for us and help us remember things, right? How many of you cannot remember the names of your children, but you know the lyrics to your favorite songs? I mean, what's important here, right? <laughs> of course. So that's what we're talking about. The whole book of Psalms is a book of songs, okay? Now, the 119th Psalm is the longest of all the Psalms, and it's really, really long. Did any of you go back and try to read from the beginning of the Psalm all the way to the end? Yeah, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. I would encourage you to do that when we're finished here, now that you're going to learn more about what this psalm actually is, okay? In a way, that's difficult to do, though, because this psalm goes on and on and on and on, talking about the same thing, just like your boring friends do. They go on and on and on and on, talking about the same thing. I didn't mean to apply that all your friends are boring. Okay, I'm just... <laughs> right? This psalm has a structure that none of us would pick up on unless we know the Hebrew language very well. 
This psalm is called an acrostic psalm because it is comprised of 22 sections. Why 22? Because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Each section begins with one letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order. You have seen sometimes poetry or songs that, that start with A and then go to B and then go to C. Well, that's the way this psalm is structured. It starts with Aleph and Beth and then continues to go on. As it turns out, this, this particular section uh, that we are looking at starts with the 14th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's the 14th of the 22 sections. That 14th letter is the, is, would be pronounced uh, Nun, Okay, it's, it's spelled in English, uh, which is impossible to do, but it's a, you know, it's a phonetic transliteration, N-U-N, not none, but nun. And in your notes, I've actually reproduced that letter for you, one of the ways it would be written in Hebrew, uh, on the, under the specific notes on verses 105 through 112. Each of these 22 sections is a separate little unit, each one of them celebrating the idea of the Torah, the idea of the Word of God. And if you'll notice, as you read the, 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 um, this little section, there are lots of different words used, more or less uh, as synonyms, if you will, to talk about the Torah, right? Um, we're talking about ordinances. You see the word ordinances in verse 106. Of course, the word word in, in 105. Word occurs in 107. Ordinances again uh, in 108. Law in 109. Precepts in 110. Decrees in 111. Statutes in 112. You see all those words? Those words all basically refer to the same thing, right? God's word or God's Torah that is revealed to us. And so, as we look at this psalm, um, we, we understand that it is a piece that has been developed for use in worship, probably never all at once, okay? Probably bits and, pit and, and pieces and snippets. That's why I wanted to look at just this one snippet of eight verses here. We're going to go in detail through those eight verses in just a minute. But one last quotation. I thought this was a beautiful way of looking at this. C.S. Lewis, many of you know uh, C.S. Lewis, phenomenal writer and, and master of the English language. He says that Psalm 119 is a pattern. It's a thing done like embroidery, stitch by stitch, through long, quiet hours, for love of the subject and for the delight in leisurely, disciplined craftsmanship. Isn't that a beautiful way of looking at that? That helps me to spend more time with this psalm, even when it seems to get repetitious, because I love beautifully crafted things, intricately crafted things, and I have a little bit of understanding of what it takes to create those things, because I have, on a scale of one to a hundred, I'm at about five when it comes to patience, and so I, I have huge respect for folks that have patience that can do the same thing over and over and over again and create a thing of beauty because of that repetition. How many of you are folks like that? Are some of you able to do that? Yeah. And how many of you like to buy the work that somebody else has done? Right? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's kind of what this psalm is like. It's a, it's a beautiful way of looking at that. So let's begin to take this apart, and I, and I want to ask you, I want to get you involved in this conversation just as we go line by line through this. First of all, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
That's a phrase that we're very familiar with. That's been put to some music, right? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. There we are, right there. It's easy to remember the psalm because of the music. Let me ask you a question. Why do we need lamps and lights? So we can see where we're going. Let's ask it in a different way. Have any of you ever fallen over something in the dark? How about within the last 24 hours, shall we say? <laughs> right? Uh, we, we have a member of this group uh, who lights went off and she stumbled and fell, right? Uh, just recently, broke a, broke a hip. This is a big issue, right? This is a big issue and a wrist. Seeing where you're going is really, really, really important in normal life. And what a beautiful image of thinking about our spiritual life, our real life, the most important life in some sense, the life that goes on forever. Seeing where you're going. Seeing what reality actually is. Have any of you ever walked into a dark place and thought you were one place and then suddenly realized you were a different place? Yeah, yeah. Has that happened for you in the last 24 hours? It's not. <laughs> right? So what a beautiful image. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Now, we're in a series of, of lessons, as you're aware, uh, where we're thinking about the business of light in particular, God's word being a light, and all this is a description of that light. But one way to get in really good touch with the importance of this is to think about that time when you stumbled and fell and busted your noggin, as my mother would say, uh, and how much that hurts and how much that interrupts your life, and how much it's important for us to see the light. Now, let's keep going on. There's a whole lot of explanation then of what it means to have God's word light up our life. Look at verse 106. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to observe your righteous ordinances. Okay, ordinances is the word we're looking at, but look at the ordinances that we swear to uphold. Why would you do that? Why would you, why would you swear an oath to God? Or just an oath in general to nobody in particular? Why do we do that? It's a promise. It's a commitment. It's as firm a way that we have of saying that we intend to do something. I, Jack, take you, Helen, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. I got that one down, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Here we see that it's a wonderful thing to have God's word, to, to have that body of information and knowledge and the relationship that's possible because of it with God and the successful life that's possible because of God, it's a wonderful thing to have it out there, isn't it? But if it's just out there, what good does it do? How many of you walk around the house at night or early in the morning to get coffee to take upstairs to your dearly beloved, and you know the pathway so well you don't turn on the lights, but then somebody's put something in a place where it's not supposed to normally be, and you run into it and you say, I should have turned on the light, right? How do we turn on the light? This is one way. We say, I promise. I intend to keep 
this law, to obey this ordinance. That's the way you turn on the light. Is you say, I think this is a good thing to do. Turning on lights when it's dark is a good thing to do. In fact, it's a necessary thing to do. Isn't that a beautiful way of looking at the light and looking at our role in that? Verse 107, I am severely afflicted. Stop right there. I am severely afflicted. Talk to me about your severe afflictions. What are they? Disagreements with others. So you had an argument with him last night, huh? Is that what it was? Yeah. (laughs) Business, life, you know, how many times have I heard my business partner stole the business from me? I've heard that so many times, right? Exactly. Okay, that's one great example, problems in relationships. Give me another example of affliction. Yes. Beating yourself up in your mind. Yep, absolutely. You're your own worst enemy, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Good one. Something else. You bet. Illness, disability, some part of your body that never has worked, some part that used to work that isn't working now. I can go on for a long time about that now, right? Absolutely. Physical, just physical affliction, and then the physical and spiritual affliction of addiction, right? Oh, my heavenly days. Yeah, another good one. What else? What else afflicts you? Fear. Fear, right? Fear and the anxiety. Neil did a good job of talking about fear and anxiety. You, you should be afraid if there's a Mack truck coming at you at 70 miles an hour, right? Uh, but, but, but if the Mack truck is over on the freeway and you're over here on the 101, and you're still afraid of the Mack truck, that's anxiety, right? That kind of fear that just disables you, that is, that is irrational, uh, that, that is paralyzing, or the kind of fear that, that, that is legitimate and real, but you still have to live through whatever that fear is, right? You know, I, we fear a lot of things that might happen to us, actually. Um, you know, you get into an airplane, or, or you drive on the 5, or the 101, or the parking lot at, uh, at the post office at any given time of day here, right? What else afflicts you? Insecurity. Insecurity, exactly. Am I good enough for this? Do they like me? Am I going to be able to handle this? All those kinds of things. Technology. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I just read a fascinating article, I think it was uh, an opinion in the in, um, New York Times yesterday that somebody posted, um, or the Atlantic, I forget what, but talking about the, the border wall, okay? Now, this was not a political, did you read that? It's not a political conversation. Yeah, somebody posted it and then I reposted it. What this author contends is that our real issue is not the physical movement of peoples. That has always happened, that will always happen. Sometimes walls work, sometimes walls don't work, they never work forever, etc., etc., etc. There's all of that, but leave all that aside. The real issue was that with modern technology now, uh, we can learn about each other and create a database about each other that includes our entire history. And let's say that 
you know, when you were in college, uh, you signed out a form uh, so that you could get a free meal that was uh, fed to you by the young Republicans or the young Democrats or the young Chargers fans or the young Seahawks fans or whatever. And then 50 years later, somebody's wanting to hire you for a job or give you permission to come into the country or marry you or whatever, and they do a search of your history, and they learn that you did that thing and they don't like it, so you're toast. Right? That can happen today. We, can, we know everything about you. That's why some of you aren't here anymore. We know, no, it's... <laughs> right? Okay, so what else, what, what else gives us anxiety? What else afflicts us? Yes, Joyce. Selfishness. I've got to have more, and you can never have enough. A, a selfish, the problem with selfishness is that you're never satisfied, are you? Yeah. Yeah. What else? That's a pretty good list. We probably don't need to go any further because I don't want to focus so much on the affliction. I want us to be aware of it, and we certainly are. But look at what verse 107 says. I am severely afflicted, and then give me life, O Lord, according to your word. What does that mean? Why do we have that said? Why does the psalmist, the songwriter, want to say that right after talking about affliction? Because he doesn't want the affliction to overcome him. He wants God's strength to get through it. Yes, he doesn't want the affliction to overcome him. He wants God's strength to work through him to get over the affliction. Another way to say that is the answer, the solution... The way to manage the affliction is through God's word, right? I'm afflicted. I have an issue. I have a problem. Whatever it is, God's word has something to say about that, okay? It's like the instruction manual. Yes, yes. When you, it's like a troubleshooting manual, sort of, right? You know about troubleshooting? You know, if your television set won't turn on, what's the first thing you do? Make sure it's plugged in, right? Yeah? Okay. Yeah, look at the manual. There we go. Yeah, that's the best thing. Get somebody in the family who knows what to do with it, right? <laughs> Call for help. So whatever the affliction is, there is in some sense a response to that in God's word. So tell me how that works. Let's start, with, let's start with fear, okay? That's a good one to look at, okay? If we are afflicted with a, with a debilitating kind of fear, how is God's word an answer to that? Yes, the Bible says one million times. Doreen has counted them all. It says, do not be afraid. For I am with you right? Jesus says, don't be afraid because I have overcome the world, okay? Now, it's not, a, it's not an automatic thing where you just say, I'm terrified of something, but I said this from the Bible, so everything's perfect now. We understand, but it's enough to keep us going and to overcome fear. How else does the Bible answer some of the afflictions we talked about? What else did we talk about? We talked about physical disease and illness, right? Okay? And the fear that, that comes about because of that. Well, God's words, God says he will heal us, right? Sometimes we achieve that physical healing through God's power. But God is with us whether we are physically healed or not. 
How else? Yes, yes, yeah, God's word says gather the elders around, lay hands and pray for each other, right? We all, I hope you all know, if you don't, please talk to me about this, but I hope you know the incredible strength that comes when you are hurting in some way, shape, or form, and the body gathers around you and, and takes that pain out of you almost when they touch you and pray for you. Do you know that feeling? Yeah, that's part of what we're doing in Syria, right? How else? Rest. Oh, trust. Trust. Yes, thank you. I'm tired. Rest sounds really good right now. <laughs> trust. Yes, God says trust. Yeah. That's one of the ways, by the way, in which the law of God, the Torah of God, is contained in the history of the people, right? When you say the law and the stories are the same thing, people sometimes have a hard time getting a, a grasp of what that means, right? How can the history be the law? Well, the history is the law in this way. The stories of God's people teach us over and over and over again that God is faithful. That when we're unfaithful, things go pretty poorly. Even sometimes when we are faithful, thinking about Job, things go poorly. But still, if we remember the stories, we remember that we get over it, right? That God is with us through it, and so we learn to trust. There's a fascinating show on last night about the Dust Bowl. Uh, did any of you live through the Dust Bowl here? We're getting to an age now that most folks are gone. Anybody here from Oklahoma or Kansas? Oh, Tim did. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there was a drought, four or five year drought in the Midwest and, and all the crops died and, and all the soil started to blow off and lots of people died and a third of the population, that's why California exists because everybody came from the Dust Bowl years. Uh, read Steinbeck, The Grapes of Wrath, okay? There's a piece of history, a story that contains an element of the law of God, the word of God, I am with you in this, right? Let's keep on going, or we'll never get through. I get excited about this stuff, and I'll have to talk about it. Okay, verse 108. Accept my offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. What's the relationship between giving offerings of praise and learning God's ordinances? How does that work? Think about that. There we go. When you praise God, you are then open to God's teaching, God's spirit, God's leading, right? I think that's exactly what this dynamic is about. This is a wonderful little primer on, on having a spiritual life with God, having life with God, right? The scriptures continually tell us, do not be afraid. They also continually tell us to praise God, right? The last psalm, the last five psalms, really, are all about praising God. Why are we commanded? Why are we, you know, grabbed by the hand and grabbed by the nose and led to that place where we must praise God? Is it because God is, is a, a self-centered, narcissistic jerk? It's because we are. <laughs> Amen. That's exactly right. 
we need to be taken away from ourselves and led to the place where we worship the only one who is worthy of worship. We say God alone is, is good, right? When we worship and praise God, then we get away from ourselves and we say, oh, there's somebody else to learn from here. Somebody else has something to say and we're willing to listen. And we'll then learn, right? Are any of you here experts in your field, whatever it is that you do in the world? Seems like this area is full of people who are, you know, the world's best at X or Y or Z, right? Are you an expert in something? What are you expert in? You don't have to say. Real estate. Beautiful. That's great. I, somebody's got to be an expert in real estate, right? All of us are good at something, okay? If you're really, really good at something, the human tendency is to think that you're good at everything, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And that, that simply ain't the case, folks. And so we are commanded here, commanded for our own good, <laughs> to praise God because in praising God, we open ourselves up to the one who truly is good, who truly is competent, powerful, able to teach, the one who can lead us into the kind of life we want to have. Now, there are a whole lot of other dynamics in the business of humility that are good for us. We don't have time to talk about. But humili I, the, the older I get, the more impressed I am with humility. Right? Just straight, flat, outright humility. That doesn't mean weakness. It doesn't mean apology. It doesn't mean equivocation. It doesn't mean being a wishy-washy, mealy-mouthed milk toast. Did I get enough in there? Enough synonyms, right? That's not humility. Humility is, is a different thing. Let's keep it. Isn't this fun? You see how all these things are here? Okay. Uh, blah, 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 where are we? 109. I hold my life in my hand continually. What does that mean? Let's stop right there. What does that mean? I hold my life in my hand continually. Yeah, I am constantly doing things that I think are right, right? Okay. And sometimes you might be right, okay? I hold my life in my hand continually. That is a, that's a, a, a beautiful way, actually, a, a very graphic way, think about this, of saying that I am the only one who can and will live my life. As much as other people try to live my life for me, and as much as in my humanity I look at other people and wish I was living their life instead of my life, the fact is that for each one of us, we all hold our own lives in our hand. Nobody else holds it. Okay? Nobody else can make the decisions. Nobody else can feel the feelings. Nobody else can go through the experiences of our life. So that's, that's partly just a way of saying you are in charge of your life. Okay? But the problem comes up that we're not always very good at being in charge of our life. Okay? Even though we're still responsible. So what's the answer? to the problem that you have. You have been handed this life. 
you have been given your, you know, three score and ten years or whatever God's going to give you on the planet. You have been given your life at this time, in this place, with this body, with this mind, with these aptitudes and attitudes and experiences, with this family around you, with these friends around you, living in this place and not that place. That's, that's the circumstance of your life. All of that is in your hand, meaning to say you are in charge of it. So what are you going to do with it? There's the question. What are you going to do with it? That question comes up in spades when we are confronted with hard realities, okay? Back to the Dust Bowl. Do you pick up everything and leave a, a, a place where your family has lived for 200 years and go someplace else? You're in charge of making that decision. If you go, you might do better. If you stay, you might do worse, but if you stay, you might do better. How do you make the big decisions of life? Because you're in charge of your life. What's the answer here? How do you do that? I think you look for that lamp for your feet. You look for the lamp for your feet and the light for your path, right? The way it's described here, I do not forget your law, right? Um, lots of great books have been written. I've had lots of wonderful conversations with, with all of us, with myself, about how it is that you know what you're supposed to do with the life that you've been given. Right? How do I know God's will for my life so that I can have the best life? Because once you make the decision that God is God, once you praise God, once you say, God, you might have something really important to say about this, well, how do you know what God is saying then? That's a big question sometimes, isn't it? Okay, it begins with knowing God's precepts, words, law, Torah, knowing God's mind about something. Okay? Now, in extreme circumstances of life, it's pretty easy to figure out what you're supposed to do. Right? You know, uh, this person has cut me off uh, on the five, and I had to slam on my brakes, and I spilled my coffee, and the cake I spent eight hours making and decorating has fallen off on the back seat, and it's total toast. And so what God wants me to do is take my gun out of my, my car and, 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 okay? You think this is not a real problem? No, <laughs> right? Road right. What does God want me to do? Well, in that circumstance, if I know God's law, maybe God wants me to do something different. That's an easy example, of course, because it's so extreme. But the extreme illustrates all the rest of our lives and the decisions that we have to make, right? Am I supposed to do this or supposed to do that? It becomes more complicated, and yet underneath that all, there is God's law that says you do a thing that honors me, that honors others, that loves neighbor as well as self, etc., etc., etc. See how that works itself out? Isn't that beautiful? This is a great spiritual tune-up time, I think. Let's keep on going. The wicked have laid a snare for me. The wicked have laid a snare for me. How many of you are wicked and have laid snares for other people? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does this have to go back to childhood? Oh, 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 oh. Yes. Has your sister forgiven you? Or was it your brother? All right. <laughs> we don't have to go there. Three sisters. Oh, my Lord. 
wicked have laid a trap for me, right? How many of you have been caught in someone's trap? The wicked set a snare for me yesterday. Someone stole my email address and started sending out a request for people to respond to me because I had something they needed to help me with. Okay, it wasn't me, but it was... Okay, that's the wicked laying a trap for someone. Yeah, but that, there we go. <laughs> Help me, please. Yes. A few people responded and said, this doesn't sound like you, Jack. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Every once in a while, someone steals my email, and, and they send stuff to the office. And, and I'm asking for huge sums of money to be sent to X and Y different places. Do it now. And the first time it happened, our bookkeeper called and said, I don't think this is you, is it? And said, nope, it's not me. That's not the way we do business, right? What are some of the, the traps that have been laid for you? Maybe not even you. I mean, obviously, somebody's stealing my email. That's not a personal thing. They stole 8 million e email addresses yesterday, probably, right? Yeah, talk about that. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So you've been getting calls from a young man that says, Hi, Grandma, this is your favorite grandson. I need money. Cool. What are your grandson's names, by the way? I need to know so I can call you. It's not... Good luck. Oh, what an interesting name. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know people who write hundreds of checks a month uh, to all the different organizations that ask them for money. Don't send any money to anybody unless it's the village church. That's the easy way to, to get around that, right? Yeah, another trap here. Um, remember when phone books used to come out? Yes. And, and, and you used the phone book. And my husband put a listing in with Ken and Stephanie Schultz. He left for work. I get a phone call, and this guy said, I have, you know, Ken is here, and, um, and if you, and, and then he said, I, we promise not to hurt him too much, and then somebody started screaming in the background, mm. and my husband, he had just left for work, so timing-wise, it could have been, and eventually it found out that he, it was like a, uh, a pornography, he was, he was going to be an obscene phone call, he said, don't hang up, and I just absolutely lost it. Yeah. I, I, I panicked. Um, I got my cell phone and I tried to call, where I, and I called the police, and you know, it was just awful, but it was just such a sick thing to do, but I fell for it. Hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a lot out there. There's a lot out there. So, again, the wicked have laid a snare for me, but what? But I do not stray from your precepts. I do not stray from your precepts. Now, part of what we've been talking about examples of, of things where there's overt badness going on. None of us, if we knew what was going on, would actually be tempted uh, to waste our money in that way, okay? But are there ways in which you're tempted to waste your money that you'd like to be involved with? Let's talk about temptation, Right? the temptation to do the things that 
we think we'd like to do. But there's something else going on. God's law, God's precepts, right? That's harder. You know, I can't tell you how many, how many hundreds of pounds of chocolate candy come into my household at Christmas time. The wicked are laying a trap, a snare. <laughs> Fruitcake is a different issue. Verse 111. Your decrees are my heritage forever. Let's talk about heritage. My heritage. What is your heritage? Or another cognate term, your inheritance. Anybody here enjoying an inheritance of some kind? I'll bet all of us have been handed down something from the family, right? Okay? If it's in the form of, of cash or securities or real property, the Village Church can also help you with some of your tax implications there. <laughs> My heritage. Your heritage is your good name. It is your family history. It is all the privileges that you enjoy because of of to whom you were born or where you were born. Your heritage is what is given to you from generations past. All of that stuff, your heritage, right? That's what your heritage is, good stuff. You know, how many of you fantasize about a, a, a rich great uncle uh, that you've never heard about until the lawyer delivers the will and says, you're number one on the list. You're learning what my fantasies are, right? It's a, right, your heritage. What is our heritage? Your decrees. Your decrees. Your word, your Torah, your law, your precepts, your commandments, your ordinances. That's our heritage. It's a long list, isn't it? We belong to God. We belong to God. Yep. Yep. We belong to God. Isn't that fascinating? What's the most precious... What, what, think about that. What is the most precious object that you have that you have inherited from family? Yes. Your faith. Okay. That was way too religious an answer. You know... <laughs> I'm thinking about, you know, a teapot or a shotgun or something like that. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yes. Think about the precious object. Yeah, Brenda. Money to travel. Okay. That's a cool thing. Yeah. Someone else. Precious objects. Yes. A wooden what? Oh, a baking spoon. Yeah, cool. Cool, yes. A drawing that your mother did. Cool. Cool. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's so cool. Your grandmother's Bible. Yeah. I have my grandmother's Bible. My grandmother, Magdalena Valenzuela Baca, who wrote down on one of the middle pages in her Spanish Bible uh, the day, the date, the time, and the name of the ten children that she had. Uh, the sixth being my father. Yeah. Yeah. There are precious things to us. What's the most precious? Of course, our faith. God's word, the knowledge that we have from God of living the happy and successful life. Last verse, 112. 
I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. I incline my heart. Notice in this psalm that, that there are several different ways, several different methods discussed for how we turn on the light, okay, that's going to light our path. We swear with our mouths, right? Here we incline our hearts, okay? When you want to get, get centered on something, when you want to give your attention to something, what do you do? You point your heart towards it, okay? If we're having a conversation and I'm standing like this, right, looking over my shoulder, we're not going to have the same quality of conversation and we're not going to be able to focus on each other unless we're exactly like this, right? Heart to heart. I incline my heart where? Towards God. Where your heart is, that's where your focus is. That's where your source is, right? Isn't that a beautiful thought? You could take any one of these lines and write it on a sticky note and paste it on your forehead and spend the rest of the day with it, couldn't you? Isn't that beautiful? How do you, how do you incline your heart? What are some ways that you, that you can actually, uh, obviously not physically, but emotionally or spiritually, incline your heart to God? Read His Word. Meditate. Pray. Serve. Yeah, all good ways, right? Those are all ways of focusing your heart on where God is and where God wants you to be. It's not simply just turning towards God. Although, sometimes it is physically turning toward God. There are some religious traditions, not, not Christian uh, alone, but some religious traditions, what? Where five times a day, you turn towards Mecca or towards Jerusalem or towards the village church and you... Oh, that's a cool idea. Okay, how many of you, if I said, three times a day, wherever you are, turn towards 6225 Paseo Delicius? <laughs> it sounds kind of fun, doesn't it? It's, not, it's obviously not the physical act, but it's the spiritual thing that happens when you do that thing. Right? How many, maybe you don't do this. How many of you, when you're a long way away from home for a time, kind of look off over the horizon in the direction of where home is? Any of you ever do that? I do that sometimes. That's kind of what this is. Thought? There's a hymn. Turn your heart upon Jesus. Look into his marvelous face. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his beauty and grace. Yeah, yeah. There's a song for everything, isn't there? <laughs> You're saying, is there a song for stopping? Yes, there is. <laughs> isn't this fun? It's good stuff. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed and awed by you. We are filled with wonder that you would care enough about us to tell us who you are, to show us who we are, and to be with us on the path that you light. Thank you for doing that. Help us to pay closer attention. Help us to open our eyes 
and minds and hearts ever more widely so that we can not only see and walk successfully for our own sakes, but so that we can welcome others to the same path as we walk in your light. In Jesus, amen. God bless you all.